Hey, it's Matt Bowles. If you want to hang out with me in person, I'm going to be at the Latino Travel Fest in Elizabeth, New Jersey, May 31st to June 2nd. And I've got a 15% discount for you to join me. Just go to themaverickshow.com slash Latino. That's L-A-T-I-N-O. There you're going to see your 15% discounted ticket. There are going to be multiple guests from The Maverick Show attending, so you'll be able to hang out with all of us in person. You do not need to be Latino in order to attend Everyone is welcome. Again, get your discounted ticket at themaverickshow.com slash Latino. And as soon as you do, send me a DM on Instagram at Matt Bowles Maverick. Let me know that you're coming so that we can make plans to link up in person. And now here's a clip of what's coming up on today's episode. I climbed a 19,700 foot active volcano, the largest one in South America, Cotopaxi. So we leave at midnight and we summited somewhere around 7 a.m., like right as the sun's coming up. And you're not supposed to be on top once the sun is up. So we really didn't have much time. We had like 15 minutes on the summit because there's dangers of avalanche. And you've got, you're like literally, we're hopping crevasses. I mean, it's legit dangerous stuff. And my crampons lock up. So the teeth in my boots gripped each other and locked up, and I went over the edge. This is The Maverick Show, where you'll meet today's most interesting real estate investors, entrepreneurs, and world travelers, and learn the strategies and tactics they use to succeed. And now, here's your host, Matt Bowles. Hey, everybody. It's Matt Bowles. Welcome to The Maverick Show. My guest today is Sean Tierney. He is the director of sales at Pagely, a managed WordPress hosting provider that serves clients such as Disney, Warner Brothers, Comcast, and many others that you would surely know. And he does it all while working remotely from some of the most epic locations around the world. In Sean's first year of being a digital nomad, he increased Pagely's annual revenue by 70% year over year. And he did it all while traveling the world on the remote year program and living in 18 different countries on four continents that year. In the last three years total, Sean's sales expertise has helped Pagely to grow from eight to 38 employees. And he has subsequently gotten international media attention and speaking engagements around the world for the sales systems and processes he has built, including his concept of flintstoning, his automation philosophy on scaling personal attention, and the choose-your-own-adventure video consultation experience that he designed and implemented at Pagely. Sean is also the host of the Nomad Podcast and founder of the Nomad Prep Academy, an online training course to help more people transition into the nomadic lifestyle. Sean, welcome to the show. My man, it's good to be here. Awesome to have you here, brother. This show has been a long time in the making, man, this episode. It has indeed. Let's uh, let's just set the scene here for people a little bit. You and I are in Jericho Quada, Brazil. We are on the beach and it's about 6.30 in the evening right now, our time. We have just opened a bottle of Chilean Carmenere. 
which we will be drinking through on this episode. And you and I have just spent about two full weeks together in Brazil. Indeed. And your first time here. It is, yeah. So I feel like we just need to explain a little bit. Uh, for people that have never been to Brazil or have never been to this part of Brazil, just a little bit about what we have experienced thus far. So do you want to share some of the highlights from the last two weeks? Well, I think it bears mentioning we've got a cat sitting in the corner now that just wandered into the room. Uh, my water bottle is sweating about as much as I am. So uh, no, it's been great, man. We, uh, so you came off the Nomad Cruise and I basically flew in to Recife and met you in Porto de, Galinha, Porto de Galinhas. Did a couple of days there, did a couple of days in Pipa, and then we came to, to Jerry Coquara. The entire town is literally on the beach. Like there's no paved roads. There's no, it's all sand. So every path that you can walk on is all sand. And there's like restaurants and there's shops, but it's all sand. There's no paved roads. And if you really needed to drive somewhere, you get in a dune buggy and you drive in that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I mean, it's totally insane. But the other thing is that this is also one of the preeminent kite surfing destinations in the world. And I know that you are a kite surfer and you got out there on the water this week. So do you want to share a little bit just for people maybe that don't even know what kite surfing is, what is kite surfing? And maybe talk a little bit about what you connected with about the sport, what it feels like when you're doing it and what it means to you. Yeah, absolutely. So kite surfing is probably people are more familiar with windsurfing, but it's the same concept. It's a wind sport. Uh, you're on a board and you're being propelled by the wind. Uh, except instead of holding that sail up in front of you, you're actually holding lines that lead to a kite, probably 30 meters out. So, so picture just flying a big kite behind a wakeboard, essentially. I first learned the sport in Dominican Republic a few years ago, and it just it was one of those things where I first tried it and I knew I was going to be just doing this forever. Like it's it's an incredible sport. But uh, yeah, no, I was really strong. I went out two days ago, and uh, I have a larger kite with me right now. And man, it was gusty here. So it was like right at the edge of what I could handle, but it was, it was a lot of fun. And how was the experience learning to kite surf? You told me when you initially were learning in the Dominican Republic, you were renting kites before you owned your own. Yeah. And then how was that experience when you were initially learning? And, and what was that experience where the other kite surfing rookie uh, guy came down the streets? Right. So the, the, beach? <laughs> the story that I related to you in learning. So fortunately, when you're learning, there's in insurance on it. So if anything happens to the kite, you're under supervision, very unlikely you can get hurt. And if something happens, they're going to foot the bill for it. So anyways, I'm kiting, uh, I'm doing okay. And a beginner comes up and just absolutely tomahawks my kite. Like just, I don't think he saw me or something, but just brings his kite down, dives the kite right on top of mine and splits it right in half. And the instructor, <laughs> yeah, it just, it just peeled. It, it did something it should not ever do. And, uh, for, you know, and it's a thousand dollar kite. And the guy said, uh, okay, <laughs> that's on us. So <laughs> that's why I think that's why I would always rent a kite and have somebody with there with insurance. Because for me, that's, I'm sure that type of thing would be very likely to befall me, but that's amazing. I mean, the sport looks incredible and I'm hoping uh, I'm going to be here for another week. So I'm hoping to be able to get out and at least try it and get sort of a rookie lesson because it does look amazing. And all the people that I know that kite surf just rave about it in terms of, you know, what it feels like. And it's a life changing sport. It's one of these things where it is a learning curve. It's a learning curve to get into it. But once you once it clicks, just that feeling of being out on the water, propelled by the wind, you know, nothing else. It's just quiet and you're just and the jumps, like, I mean, it's, it's an amazing sport. That's awesome. Well, I definitely got to get out there and, and try that this week while we're, uh, while we're still here. 
So you and I have been planning to do this interview, I feel like, for a really long time. We've been waiting until we are in person again. And just for background, you and I probably met in, I feel like it was a good six months ago now, in Lisbon. That's right. Where you're based now for at least a half the year or so. And then you're traveling around for the other half to epic places like this. And then we had met because we both finished the remote year program. We were in different cohorts, but we both completed remote year. So as part of that alumni network, we met in Lisbon. And then we later reconnected this uh, past summer in Barcelona. And we hung out with, actually, listeners will know Jen McGee from episode five. Uh, So it was me and Jen McGee and then our friend Erica's birthday. And so we connected with you. You took us out. You bought us all a round of Fernet and Coke. And I feel like the last time I I saw you until Brazil was on the street corner at three o'clock in the morning in Barcelona. That was my final Sean Tierney memory. But at that moment, we're like, man... I got to get you. I was like, I got to get you on the podcast. And you were like, I got to get you on my podcast. So we're like, let's record them both when we're down in Brazil. So this has been many months in the making. So I'm super excited to get this conversation underway, man. So the other thing, I mean, let's start like a little bit back. You grew up and as you were coming up, music has always been a strong passion for you. And you've been musically inclined and musically involved and that kind of stuff. Can you talk a little bit about that part of your personal history and what music has meant to you? Yeah. So... I don't know. This is an interesting thing. Like I, I was taught violin early on as a kid that never really stuck. I took piano lessons that didn't really stick. And I think this is like the larger lesson that I took from this after finally finding the guitar, which is my instrument is that, uh, I think a lot of times people give up before they find their instrument and, you know, in music, but then also take what you will from that to other things. But I really think that, uh, you know, if you have a, a failure and a failure, it's, it could just be that third time that is your instrument, you know, so don't give up on that. But um, I discovered the guitar and it just clicked just like kite surfing. It was, I knew I was going to be doing this forever. So I had a great teacher. I've given actually a, a, one of the Ignite talks on this subject of like the different plateaus in music and how you break through those. Um, but for me, it was like a teacher and then, you know, learning how to read tablature and getting a four track. Uh, you're into music and DJing. So you know about like, you know, four track is the old school way of recording that was the next level. So yeah, no, it's music has been a huge part of my life. That's awesome. I mean, literally just last night, we were hanging out with a bunch of digital nomads here in Brazil. There must have been, I don't know, 25 people or 30 people at this barbecue hanging out at somebody's villa. And it got dark and everybody was just sitting around outside on these outdoor couches and somebody pulls out a guitar. You know, and it was just basically an ad hoc jam session. And you jumped on it and everybody was sitting around you and it was a couple other people that were playing as well. But it's an amazing skill to have, I think, and something that, that certainly you carry with you for the rest of your life. And certainly one skill that I appreciate because I am in no way musically inclined at all other than my, uh, my DJing era. But I thought it was amazing because you really, you know, when you go different places, you know, you really immerse yourself in those cultures and, and, and through music. And so when we were coming here to Brazil, you had said to me, I just memorized this Brazilian song and I can sing it in Portuguese and I can play it on the guitar. And it's a Brazilian song by a Brazilian pop artist. And you were like, I got to figure out a a venue. I got to figure out how I can get on, you know, stage somewhere or in front of a crowd somewhere and also come up with a guitar because you're not traveling with a guitar. So I need a guitar and I need a, a, a microphone in front of an audience. And if I can get that, I can drop this, you know, Brazilian song for the Brazilian audience. And so, when you told me that, I immediately started thinking. I was like, all right, so this is, this is like on the back of my mind, you know, for the whole time we were there. So we were in, we've been now to three towns. So we've been to Puerto de Galinas, we've been to Pipa, and now we're in Jericoquara. And so when we were in Pipa, 
and we were walking that night with a couple of friends of ours. I see this exactly the venue that I had, you know, pictured that you said you wanted. So it was a bar, you know, it was like open to the street, restaurant type bar. And there was a, you know, obviously the singer that was in there was playing the guitar, acoustic guitar in front of a microphone. And I looked in and I remembered what you wanted. And I was like, I'm going to go in and see if I can negotiate my man to get up and do one song because I know these people when they're going to see you, right? Because you're like, you know, it's six foot seven, like American dude, and you're going to roll in there and they're going to be like, what is this dude going to play? And then when you drop that song, I knew they were going to go crazy. So I go in and I'm like, like, wait here. I told you that. I was like, wait here. Let me go see if I can get him on. And I go in, and of course, my Portuguese is very, uh, uh, very minimal. But between my broken Portuguese and their broken English, we kind of explained what we wanted, and they were amenable to it. And so we got you up there with the guitar. You got to use that person's guitar and in front of the mic. And are you able to... We don't have a guitar here is the only thing. But are you able to do like maybe just a verse or part of the verse acapella in terms of what it was that you sang that night? Because as soon as you sang it, like the first like three or four words I was looking around, like everybody just looked up and they all knew the song. And so they're all singing along like, oh, and it was crazy. Are you able to do like a verse just to give people a sense of of of, of that song? Just acapella off the cuff? Sure. With the disclaimer that uh, I... My guitar is my strong suit. The singing is just like the, <laughs> it's, the singing is not my strong suit. But yeah, sure. Uh, uh, so the song is Dona Maria, and it's um, Dona Maria, deixa namorar a sua filha, vai me desculpando sadia, essa menina um desenho no céu. I love it, man. It was so good. It was so good. And everybody just looked up and they would, and the whole place was singing along and they were like, couldn't believe that you knew it. And you played, uh, you played to the crowd, my man, which was, uh, which was amazing. And and now we're here in Jerry and we are seeing all kinds of remarkable things here. I mean, I expected like this super, you know, secluded, tiny beach town, remote town and stuff. And I didn't know if it'd be like everybody would be asleep by, you know, uh, uh, eight o'clock or what it would be. But this town is just totally nuts. Like they have this section called Kaiparina Street, (laughs) which, which is literally like 50 Kaiparina Carts. And so for people that don't know what Caipirinha are, it's the Brazilian national drink. So the alcohol that's in it is called cachaça, which is a Brazilian spirit. And then there's only two other ingredients, which are lime and sugar. And if you blend those three ingredients properly and you make this drink properly, it is absolutely outstanding. And so here in Cherry Coquata, there are there's something called Caipirinha Street, which is which again, remember the streets here are just sand. So it's literally just like a section of the beach path, right? And there's probably literally 40 to 50 Caipirinha carts of people that make the Caipirinha drink. They're all like, look identically the same. And then when you go down there at night, every single one of them is doing business. Yeah. When we got there, I'm like, how is this possibly going to support the demand? Like there's, there's nobody here. It's a ghost town and there's 50 Caipirinha trucks. What are we doing? And then sure enough, yeah, there's like a line five people deep by the, an hour later. It was crazy. It was amazing. And they have this super interesting club I'm going to call it a nightclub, although it's called Cafe Jerry, and it's a rooftop nightclub. But the fascinating thing is that it's only open during happy hour. It's literally only open from like 6 to 8.30 or something. And But it's like as live and crazy as any nightclub that you'll ever imagine. They have on the roof fire twirlers and people, I mean, like, I'm talking like, I mean, 
eight to 12 people that are like juggling fire and, th- and then they have the flare bartenders that are juggling the bottles and standing up on the bar. They literally have a tank, a water tank with a mermaid in it, right? Like, so they have this woman is wearing this whole mermaid suit with the mermaid tail, like swimming around it. And then they start doing acro yoga on the roof and they've got the mermaid up doing acro yoga. I mean, it was like one of the wildest nightclub scenes I've ever seen. And it's here in this tiny beach town. And oh, by the way, this is only happy hour because it closes at 8.30. And then everyone goes to Caipirinha Street. Yeah. I mean, it's just, been, it's just been completely over the top. It's ridiculous. Yeah. And I've never seen a town, like you said, built completely on sand. Like, I, I don't know if there's bedrock somewhere there or these all these houses are just built on sand, I guess. I, I have no idea. But it's basically a giant beach with buildings on it. It's, it's totally nuts and totally amazing. Brazil is um, is a place that is always, to me, a very magical place. Like, each time I come here, I'm just like, oh, yeah, that's what I love about Brazil. I mean, it's just really, really a very, very special place. So it's awesome to be back here. And, you know, I feel like some of our discussions about the, the Caipirinha trucks and the market there and this particular club and how packed they are every night, all of these actually ties in well with our sales discussion, which I want to have on this podcast with you. And I want to go pretty deep and granular on the sales stuff. And for all the people that are listening that are either in sales or they're in business of some kind or they're building businesses, I think are going to get a lot out of this discussion. But I think this actually leads into it quite well because, you know, you were talking about, oh, there's 40 Caparina trucks. Is there really a market for 40 Caparina trucks in Jericho Quata? Oh, yes, there is. And they know exactly what their market is and they're, and they're all catering to it, right? Or this amazing club that has all of this crazy acrobatic stuff going on, but it's only open during happy hour. And it was interesting because today I heard a number of our digital nomad friends talking and they're like, I love this concept. I go to the club and it, I mean, it is a dance club. I mean, people are soaked with sweat. I mean, they're dancing like hard dancing, right? Like you would at a club, but then it closes at 830. So they're like, I go, I party as hard as I can. I'm you know, bar and the dancing and all this stuff. From six to eight thirty. Yeah, and then I leave the club. I go to dinner, and then if I want to, I can be in bed before ten. Yeah. They're like, I love this concept, right? So they've they've clearly hit a product market or a service market fit there, and they're crushing it. Oh yeah, no, and it's wall to wall. Like you know, if you if you get there, I think after seven, there's no way you're getting in. So yeah, exactly. So let's talk a little bit. Let's go into the sales stuff here, and maybe let's just start with that. From the very beginning, and then I want to go. I want to go. You know, start from people that are at the early stage of developing their product or their service and getting their sales initiatives off the ground. And then I want to just go through the whole acceleration process and the systematizing and get quite granular because I think a lot of people that run businesses are going to really get a lot out of this conversation. So, but let's just start at the very beginning for people that are conceptualizing a product or service. How do they think about product market fit and the minimum viable product and what should they be doing at that stage? Sure. So I guess this is a key distinction that people need to, to realize. Um, so I used to run something called the Lean Startup Circle for Phoenix. Uh, Lean Startup, for those people who are listening who aren't familiar with it, it was a book put out by Eric Reese uh, that I was actually a follow-on to Steve Blank's original Four Steps to the Epiphany. And it's this concept of there is a way to build a startup that de-risks how you do it. It can drastically reduce the headaches and the capital loss and all the, the, the heartache of building a startup. So there's like this magic demarcation point where if you're pre-product market fit, it's foolish to wor- worry about growth. Don't even think about 
how do we scale this thing because it's not working yet. So pre-product market fit, everything you do should be around finding product market fit. And I'm not going to remember this offhand, but Sean Ellis, I think, has the best definition. It has to do with a certain percentage of people say they can't live without your service once they try it. So it's like 60% of your target market, once they use it, they, they just say they can't live without it. And that's kind of the, the litmus test of have we achieved product market fit yet or not. Once you do achieve product market fit, your emphasis totally shifts away from that. You still, it's not, it's not like you forget about it and you don't keep improving your product, but your emphasis now shifts towards how do we scale this thing? So I guess my advice to those people who are pre-product market fit would be do the things that will get you to product market fit. And what are those things? How do you test for minimum viable product? And how do you, you know, what are the sort of the threshold where or the benchmark where you can say, okay, this is going to work. This is solid. And now I want to start scaling. Yeah. So this is not a science. It's an art. But straight up, my best advice is to Google Steve Blank Udacity. That's Steve Blank Udacity. That course is now, in my opinion, the de facto thing that everyone should just watch. Um, They now teach this, like at Stanford, I don't believe they teach writing a business plan anymore. Steve Blank's business model canvas and this whole process is definitively how you do a startup at this point. So if you're in that phase, I highly recommend you just Google Steve Blank Udacity. There's a free course out there. It's like a six hour, uh, one month long course. You know, you do a bunch of exercise and whatnot, but I highly recommend doing that uh, as a next step. Okay, cool. And then once you get to that point and you say, okay, I've established it, we've sold enough you know, to demonstrate that there is clearly demand for this, we want to scale it, what are the steps to scaling a sales department? Yeah, okay. So I will take you through, I, I basically came up with a seven-step system. This, this is just cobbled together from books I read and my personal experience and whatnot. Uh, but this got some traction. I did a talk in Lisbon um, if you Google Pagely sales system, it's the first thing that comes up. And this is all, you know, there's a Prezi presentation and a video and whatnot. But we can just walk through. There's like basically seven steps. So the first step is to, what I say, map out your flows. So you need to understand, like I parachuted into Pagely. I didn't know, you know, where the skeletons are buried and like how things work and, you know, how what the sales system was. There really was no sales system. Um, so you have to really map out what exists. And I have two types of maps that I do. Uh, I don't know how deep we want to go in this, but basically I draw out a map that shows me, you know, what are the flows of information? How do people get to the site? Where are they going in the site? And then where does that information land? So what are the repositories of this data and how did it get there? And then the other one that I do is called, uh, it, I, I basically took it from the Infusionsoft Lifecycle Marketing Funnel, but you basically do like a left to right diagram of the, the life cycle, the customer journey. And, you know, where do these people start? in the ether? And then what are the, the tributaries that feed them into your site? How do you capture that email address, turn them into a lead, nurture that lead, convert the sale, upsell them, cross-sell them, get referrals out of them, and just basically move them down that continuum left to right. So those are the two maps that I recommend doing. Okay. So first, what you need to do is you need to basically literally map that out and actually create a physical, visible flow chart. Correct. And then you can see what that path looks like and what the sales funnel looks like. And you can actually visualize it, which is important because I feel like most people don't do that. Even if they could rattle off, be like, oh, yes, this is what happens. Your lead does this and they come in and then they have this and they can kind of verbalize it. If you don't have it written down, that's the important step that you're saying is it must happen first. There's something about putting it on paper. And I think people who do this will testify to it. But something changes when you put it on paper. It it somehow commits you at a greater level to it and it forces you to acknowledge it. And I just think it's, it's absolutely worth 
the time to do. And there's a and there's a plugin you were telling me for free that you can use to actually map it in a in a visual way with with images and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Draw IO is a Google. It plays nicely with like the Google Docs and Google Drive. So Draw IO, highly recommend that. It's a flow charting software, but it also does a bunch of other stuff, uh, and it's great for this kind of thing. Okay, cool. So then after you have that mapped out and you have it in visualized in front of you, what is the next step? Yep. Um, so track metrics and KPIs. The distinction there being metrics are very tangible numbers, things like page views and time on site and things that you know Google Analytics can quantify for you. KPIs are key performance indicators, and those are more basically they have strategic business value. So they translate to things that matter to your business. So an example might be MRR, monthly recurring revenue is a key one that we track. Sales cycle, you know, anything that moves the needle or that's important for you to like keep in a dashboard and monitor week to week would be KPIs. And you got to, I mean, they say you can't improve what you can't measure. I don't necessarily agree with that. You can improve things and not be measuring them, but it is far better to measure those things, get a baseline, know where you stand, and then you can actually see what you're doing, you know, how the changes you're making are impacting those numbers. Cool. So for each business, the actual KPIs might be slightly different, especially if they're like micro KPIs or, or certain like conversion points, depending on how the flowchart goes. They might say, how many people are we converting here? Or how many people are we converting there? And then they would have different KPIs than another business. So it'd be important for each business to kind of go through and say, what are the most meaningful key performance indicators for, for us? Yeah, that's absolutely right. Everything is contextual based on what you're doing, the situation. KPIs can roll up into other KPIs. So you can have like a very high level one like MRR and then deconstruct that into, okay, well, what is our lead flow and what is our close times and all the things that lead up to the actual sale. Right. And then you're really looking at the different points of your sales funnel. And so then you're able to see where is your are your different conversion points at each step along your sales funnel and then where are they dropping off and so where are the what are the weak points in your sales funnel that you could then focus efforts on bolstering this is why you know our end KPI of you know whatever it is right monthly revenue isn't where it needs to be because of this particular point is the weakest in our sales funnel so therefore if we put effort into leveraging and improving that most likely all of our you know results would go up that's right. And the way that I like to think about it is picture, you know, a garden hose where water's coming in at one end. That's your your flow of leads. And at the other end are your sales. It's, you know, dripping out. Some fraction of that is actually converting to a sale. And so your job as the entrepreneur is basically to look at that and figure out where is the kink in this hose? What is the simplest thing I can do to make more sales drip out the other end? Right. Exactly. Okay. So once you have your flow chart of what your sales process and your buyer experience path looks like, and you have that mapped out visually, and then you've identified the metrics and the KPIs that are the most important for you to track, what then is the next step? Sure. Yeah. So establish a process. So this can be, again, contextually specific to your situation. For us, uh, it was as simple as just getting a pipeline created. Trello is a good example of a Kanban-based, I like that style of pipeline, very visual, lets you see the stages. You got to pick stages that are relevant to you and your business. In our case, kind of the simple flow of how people come in, become a lead and become a customer is basically we have a quote form. We now have the interactive video thing, which I showed you, uh, but people fill out their info, become a lead. We have a you know dance back and forth with sales and some nurturing that goes on with automation. 
And then eventually these, they either become a customer or they don't. And so moving through that process, if you, you make sensible milestones in whatever system you're using to track that, at least now you have a system and you're not just like shooting from the hip in email. Right. And so when people are trying to establish that process, what should that look like when the process is completed? Because again, it might vary obviously or be customized from business to business, but what are kind of the core tenets of that or what should it look like when it's finished? So again, with the lean stuff, I'm a huge believer in don't like pre-optimize. So do only the minimum thing necessary to get you to the next level. I think that's actually kind of an axiom in entrepreneurship and you're nodding your head. So I know you agree, but basically I would figure out what is the simplest pipeline that we can put in place that will give us useful data in terms of where people stand. Like what are those just major milestones of being a lead, you know, being in dialogue maybe and closing. And so if those are the main kind of high level pipeline stages, you can always deconstruct those and get higher resolution down the road. But for now, just start with the most basic thing and don't get ground up and trying to, you know, figure out all these stages in that don't really mean anything anyways, because I think that's where people can go off the rails. Okay. And then once you've established that process, what then is the next step? Right. So I have a philosophy, you alluded to it in the intro. Flintstoning, it's actually not a term that I came up with. I first heard it uh, many years ago from a, a Canadian thing. It was called Cambrian House, uh, but it always just stuck with me because it makes so much sense. And the gist of it is this, on that theme of not pre-optimizing and not spending too much time worrying about stuff that doesn't matter and automating things that just aren't important, always do things, err on the side of doing it the manual way. And so the, the, the reason it ties back to the Flintstone thing is if you remember the Fred Flintstone mobile, it looks like a car, you know, there's no engine though. It's his feet underneath that's powering the vehicle. And so you have what seems to be this well-oiled sales machine, but under the hood, it's you guys just running as fast as you can, you know, human powered to start by going through it manually like that. It really, it, it does a bunch of things. It forces you to confront the situation and to figure out what actually needs to happen. So you're not like diving in and trying to machine automate things that then turn out to be the completely wrong thing and, and don't matter. Okay. So once you establish the process, execute everything manually so that you understand exactly how to do everything and how everything works. And then once you're doing that and you're running that fast, what then is the next step? Yeah. So I believe, and again, this is all my process. So who's to say that there isn't a better way, but to me, the next step is to delegate. Your last episode that I listened to was Ali Boone. And that was a good example of, you know, the idea that you just can't possibly scale yourself. You run into just physical barriers as to what one person can do. And you're not even necessarily the best person. You're not going to be amazing at everything. So it really is cleaving off the roles. You know, to start, you're going to do a lot of functions. But as soon as humanly possible, you want to try to cleave off the things that aren't your strong suits. And the way that you choose or, or how you choose which roles to cleave off, I think, is a function of that, it, you know, picking what you're good at and trying to not spend time on, on things that aren't your core competency, uh, but also like what are the things that are truly eating up all your time. Right. And then you can build, once you build the actual system in the process and you've done it yourself and you can actually write down or record upon video exactly how to do what you do. Now, all of a sudden you have a system that you can hire and train someone else exactly how to do what you've already been doing. So it gets done the way you want it to get done because you built that system and you did it. But now you're just training someone to replace you in running that portion of the system. Yeah, that's absolutely it. And so once you've that, that is the key though. What you just said is as soon as you can describe it as in terms of like a playbook or a recipe, then that is the instruction set that you either hand to a new person or you can take that and actually automate it with software. 
Okay. And then after you are able to build those processes and start hiring other people to run them and start delegating them, what then is the next step? Yeah. So after that, I would say the next step is to automate. At the point at which you've been able to successfully delegate these roles and have other people do them, that shows that you understand it to the extent that it can be passed along to someone else. That's usually a good opportunity to take that and then take it one step further and even automate it with a machine. So I specialize in, you know, one of the things that I picked up in my weird winding career trajectory was lifecycle marketing automation. And so I've been able to uh, learn a skill set that's, that's super useful in terms of email automation, intelligent stuff where you can, you know, see what people are doing on your website and with emails and adapt the messaging, personalize it and just put everything on autopilot. Cool. And then once you do that, I mean, there's, well, there's certain things, right? Would you break it out and say that there's certain things that you want to delegate, meaning that you want another human being running at all times, but then there's a subsection of things that can actually be machine automated and you should break out which is which. Yep. Yeah. So this is, this is a judgment call. I think the messier stuff, not everything lends itself really well to, you know, being able to have a computer do it. We're, we're going through a process right now, actually, for Pagely, where we are Flintstoning this pretty aggressive outreach thing. I told you the, the Dr. Dre, Mr. Miyagi thing. And we are delegating for now, making it very human powered by design. But at some point, once we know all the variables, we know everything and how it works and what is effective, at that point, then we can look to machine automated. Got it. And can you give some examples of maybe a couple things that are machine automated that you were maybe like at one point Flintstoning them, but now they're machine automated? Sure. So I built a system called Leviathan, which is our kind of our nerve center. I showed it to you, but it's it's basically the thing that powers all follow-up with all stakeholders for Pagely, regardless of if you're you know a lead, a prospect, a, whoever you are, a, a writer, an investor, although we don't have investors, but like any stakeholder in the system would basically, uh, the follow-up to that person is powered by this thing. And what it is, is it knows how we've tagged you, what you know, what, what dimensions we're tracking about, you know, what your pain points are, what features you need, what host you were previously with, who you're investigating, all these things that we gather. Uh, it knows that information and it can basically follow up at the right time with very highly targeted stuff that's going to make you, you know, that's going to grab your interest. And that's now all been machine automated. Correct. Okay. Yeah, but it didn't start that way. We had to figure out, okay, what's the right formula here? Uh, we kind of came to the conclusion that case studies are very strong for us. We have a lot of big clients. You listed some of them. And so by doing those case studies, and then I, I essentially coded each one of those case studies on these dimensions, figured out the whole tagging system that we use in calls. And then, yeah, and then once I knew what worked from sending these case studies out manually, then just automated the whole thing. So basically, just to give a case study example here, if I'm understanding it correctly, would be you have a client like Disney or like Warner Brothers, and they have very specific needs or pain points that they come to you guys for. And they say, we need to buy your serve, pay for your service to fill these needs that we have. And then you guys say, okay. And then you're able to create a case study about how your service benefited Disney, for example, or Warner Brothers. And then when another prospect comes in and they have the exact same or very similar pain points or needs as Disney, let's say, and they come in to you guys and they're looking around and they're checking out your product and that kind of stuff, you're able, based on the tagging process of saying, okay, this person is in this category of, of their needs or their pain points, 
you're able to then trigger an automated sequence to them, let's say, of emails where you're sending them relevant information saying, here's how this particular service, you know, worked for Disney or worked for Warner Brothers or worked for a company in a similar position to yours. So they're getting relevant information as opposed to maybe a different way that your service worked for a different company that would be less relevant to them. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Telling people the stuff that is important to them, because there's so many things we could talk about at any given time, but it's going to fall on deaf ears if that's not relevant to them. Right. And you've now been able to automate that. So as your leads come in and you're able to identify their needs, you're able to get them into the right automated sequences and get only the relevant information to those people. That's right. And therefore have a higher conversion rate, I assume, because they're getting all this information that magically is relevant directly to them. That's exactly right. Okay. And so then once you've delegated and you've automated those things, what then is the next step? Yeah. So the seventh and final step is what I call scaling personal attention. And that's not my term. That's actually a guy, Jermaine Griggs, uh, who I think you said you saw at InfusionCon. So this is one of the most brilliant guys I think out there. He has an incredible story. Uh, he's been kind of a personal mentor to me. I took his, his course, uh, but his concept is it's really a philosophy of how you apply automation. And the way to think about it is basically how do you deliver a boutique experience at scale? So how do you give, like people come to boutique stores because they like that one-on-one concierge personal touch, but how do you deliver that at scale with millions of visitors? And there is a way to do that in a very tactful manner. You know, like usually when you think of automation, you think of like annoying drip campaigns that you're just like unsubscribe, this is spam, whatnot. But if you do it right, it's actually very helpful to those visitors. You're, you're servicing them, you're meeting them on their turf and you're, you're connecting with them. And uh, it's actually, a, it, it's well received if you do it right. Can you give an example of that? Yeah, well, I think the interactive video is a perfect example. You know, that's not something that I had seen. I've never actually seen that done before. We just kind of, you know, I came up with that idea, but based on these concepts of scaling personal attention. So this is actually a really good example because it also involves Flintstoning. So we did our, you know, our sales process emerged over many calls. And then I documented that using that dry flowchart stuff. And then I took that document and made a stubbed out a bunch of videos that would allow us to deliver our normal consultative sales process, but entirely done via video. And really the best way, if you're listening, I know this gets kind of abstract, but um, the best way would be just to go to pagely.com slash explore, maybe put it in the show notes. Uh, But this is, it's truly a organic feeling. I think you'd agree, uh, sales consultation. Yeah, I've gone through it. And I think the way you characterize it to me initially was a choose your own adventure, which I think a lot of people get that concept of what that means. And it's literally an interactive choose your own adventure video consultation, which I've never seen anything like it either. And so can you explain a little bit more? I've gone through it, so I know what it is. But and I agree, we are definitely going to put that link in the show notes, because I think people should go and see what you've done and what you're talking about, because the principles and the concepts are are super applicable for any business, obviously, who are trying to scale personal attention. But can you just describe a little bit about, first of all, I guess, describe it from the buyer experience, the prospect experience, right? And then the behind the scenes a little bit about how you actually built it. Yeah. Well, so let me start with the goals of this project. We have one account exec right now, one SDR. My goal was basically, how do we get Matt in front of more people without consuming his time? So SDR, say what that acronym is? Uh, Sales Development Representative. And his name is? 
Chad. Chad. And then Matt is the account executive. The account executive. Okay. So I just want to make sure people have this straight. Okay. So, yep. so go ahead. Yeah. So the, the, the goal was a couple part. We wanted to get Matt in front of more people without actually making him physically get on the phone with folks. We also wanted to offer the customer a self-serve option. So at midnight, if they feel like going through a sales consultation, they don't have to wait and, you know, book a Calendly appointment with us the next day. They can just go, if they're ready to do it, boom, they, there's no reason they shouldn't be able to go through it. The other thing this does is in the background, so it gives people that that convenience of, of being able to experience it on their own terms. But in the background, we're also logging all of their answers to each of those bullet points. And I decidedly use the exact same structured note-taking process that we use on our sales calls. And so it makes use of those exact same tags. We collect all that information, and then I'm able to trigger the exact same automations that I'd already built that already exist to then reach out to those folks. And we never even talked to them yet. So, yeah, so I went through it and just to share, you know, my experience in going through it is it's basically a video, right? And you just click on the video to play it like you would a normal video. And then your sales guy, Matt, comes on and welcomes me there and gives me some basic information and different stuff. And then he asks me a question and he says, would you like to do this? Or would you like more information about this? Or would you like to go, you know, would you like this other thing instead? And he asks me a question and he says, choose now. And I get to click a button to go one way or the other, which is the choose your own adventure thing. And I was like, oh, that's cool. I want to click, I want more information on this thing here. And I click the button and then immediately he responds to the button that I clicked. So I say, I want more information on this thing, or I want to you know, understand more about this. And I click on it and then he says, cool. And then he tells me exactly what the button said, what he just asked me if I wanted to know. And then when we get to the end of him explaining that, he says, okay, cool. At this point, do you want this or do you want that? And so at the end of each video clip, which is just like a few minutes long, each one, let's say, he's asking me, do you want to go here or here? So it's like one video screen but I'm just clicking the answers to his questions. And based on what I want, I'm directing his conversation and getting the replies from him that I'm most interested in. Yeah. I don't know if, if, if maybe the people listen have seen that thing, Robot Chicken, or if you remember that from back in the day, but it's essentially Robot Chicken with a sales process. You're getting to dictate the flow of the sales process. Where do you want to talk about next? You want to talk about our scalability, our security, our speed, or whatever. Right. You know, you get to guide that discussion. But on the back end, kind of the nice thing for us is we're logging all those answers that I'm then able to make use of with highly targeted follow up. Right. So each time I, when I went through your site, when I went through this choose your own adventure video experience, each time I clicked a button and told Matt what I wanted more information on or what my situation was, because he'll ask, I mean, he'll ask qualifying questions too, right? Or he'll ask like me to designate like, oh, if you're a small business or such and such, you know, like click this. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. Boom. And then it's, oh, cool. For small businesses, we do such and such, right? Or whatever it may be, right? Yeah. And so then each time I'm doing that, I'm giving you more information about myself which I'm happy to do because it's customizing the value that you're able to give to me because you're going to then he's going to then speak to me about my specific situation which is what I want but you're also capturing and auto tagging me as a prospect with that information so that if I haven't let's say bought the service by the end of the call you're now able to put me into your automated drip marketing follow up with those case studies or information that are applicable specifically to my needs. So you know I'm a small business, you know I'm, my pain points are this, you know I'm interested in this because I've clicked all of that stuff. And now you're able to just hit me with information that's directly, immediately, and customized applicable just to me. 
Yeah. And that's exactly the email that you're going to get after that is going to be, Matt, you related on our call that you're a small business and here's a great case study for you to check out. This is what we did this for this other small business. You shared with me that you were also concerned about security. Here's why security is important. So I can hit you. I know exactly the pain triggers and pain points and psychological things that I need to do in each of those emails. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's really been a, a boon. And you've now automated that entire process, but it's a, it's, it's a very customized way. And by the end of the video, I feel like I know your sales guy, Matt. Yeah. That's the other thing. Yeah. It prizes. So this is something we've noticed is our no-shows have drastically decreased for the people that go through that. So folks who go through the, what we call bottled beard, that's the code name for it. And you'll see why if you go, if you do it, but people who go through bottled beard are 58% more likely to close um, so it's a really, it's a, it has a dramatic effect on closings, but yeah, just like the value of every lead that goes through that. So we, we make a huge effort to push people through it. Yeah. And I, but I really like that aspect about, you know, humanizing your salesperson that I'm going to be in touch with. And I feel like I already know him by the end of the video, even though he doesn't know me. Yeah. Right. And this is for people that have seen the, the Nick Nimmin episode uh, of the Maverick show, you know, one of the things he talks about as a YouTube expert is he talks about the concept of building parasocial relationships with people that watch your videos, which is a one-sided relationship because they feel that they know you, even though you obviously have never met and don't know anything about them because they've seen you on video. So they see your personality and they kind of know you and this kind of stuff. So you're really humanizing yourself and starting to build that rapport. And so I'm sure by the time Matt actually gets on a live consult with one of those buyers, they're much more comfortable with him, feel that they know him and that they've already gotten upfront value from him. Yeah. Well, so first off, before you even get there, the no-show rate declines. So they're more likely to get on the phone because we're actually like subtly what we're doing is we're prizing Matt. We're saying, if you want to speak to Matt, you know, you can book a call here. You've just now gone through this thing. But like, once they see like what a rock star he is, they're like, man, I hope I can, like, I'm definitely not going to miss this appointment. Whereas people who don't know who he is, don't have that. They're just thinking, oh, it's some sales guy I can blow this off. So we see the no-show rate go down. You're right. The rapport on the call is instantly there. They feel like they know him. I would imagine you with the podcast are going to experience some of this yourself at some point, you know, once you're in places and people recognize your voice and, you know, they know you, but you don't know them. It's definitely a real like social media phenomenon that I think. Yeah, for are, sure. Like people, they're going to hear this episode like, oh, then now they know I was in Brazil and they know all this stuff and they, you know, they know about some of our experiences here. And then as people listen to you, they know more and more about you. So yeah, definitely, definitely solid. So can you talk a little bit about for, for people that are listening? that have a company and they run a sales department and they're like, yo, that sounds really epic. I want to try to give them as much value as we can. Can you talk a little bit about the back end, how you built this, what software programs you use to do this and what from the back end of the sales department side, it actually looks like to create something like this? Sure. So everything starts with planning. Well, so right off the bat. So the platform that I used uh, for the interactive video, it's called dot view. So dot 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 vu. Uh, is that system. Zapier is the glue. Uh, it's basically like a message bus. So dot view sends stuff to Zapier. Zapier is kind of like this uh, switchyard thing that determines what needs to happen. And then it pushes the leads into our CRM system, which is active campaign. Um, so those are the three technological pieces to this. Uh, but everything starts with planning. So the very first thing that you need to do is actually sit down with a blank slate. Draw.io is that flow charting software. I highly recommend it. Uh, but just sit down and really try to map out what is that sales process. Just do a decision tree diagram. You know, what are the yes, no questions? Where do you send people? And just map all that out. And the processes of doing that, even if you don't do anything with what we're talking about technologically, just going through that process is invaluable to understand your sales process. 
they say, the, the quote that I love is, if you can't describe what you're doing as a process, you don't know what you're doing. And so go through that and, and, and map it out. Um, at the very least, if you do nothing else, do that much. Awesome. And then, so then they use the, if they were to use the dot, dot .vu actual software program and they were to pay for that service and the way that Pagely has paid for that service, what then is the process for actually creating that interactive video? What, is that, what does it look like on the back end technologically? Yeah, it's, it's a lot like the Flash IDE. I don't know uh, how to describe it. I mean, it's pretty daunting interface the first time you see it. It, it does make a lot of sense once you use it, but there is a, a steep learning curve. What it's doing behind the scenes is it's actually taking a single YouTube video and it's overlaying HTML5 screens on top of it that then jump you to various timestamps within that video. And the net result of all that is what feels to be, as you experienced, just this organic kind of adaptive video experience. Uh, but that's what it's doing under the hood. Got it. And so that's really the way that, so, so it's asking me to choose something. I'm choosing something that is, first of all, registering in your system my choice so you know more about me, you know how to market to me. The other thing it's doing is it's jumping me to a timestamp in the video where it appears to me like all of a sudden I'm on a brand new video and he's answering my questions, but it's the same screen, of course. And that's because, in fact, he has just recorded all of the answers to all of the questions. And so whichever one I say I want to hear about, the software behind the hood or under the hood is just jumping me to the timestamp where I'll then get the answer I requested. Yeah, that's exactly it. Awesome. I think there's 72 videos that we had to shoot in the thing that you saw. And of course, you only at the end of the day, I think you saw like eight of them. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. Cause there's so many different choices that people could have. And that's why it's so comprehensive and why it's so meaningful and real. Right. Because there's so many different specifics that you could choose and get the specific answer for that, which is why it's relevant. It's not just some, you know, shallow automated generic thing. It's actually giving real substantive answers to most of the questions and scenarios people would have, Yeah, but on video. But this is also why we Flintstone it, because you would never want to dive into this. Like if you don't have your product and your sales process figured out, it's foolish to even try to build something like this up front. You're just going to fumble. Um, you really need to like get that all down pat, diagram it all out. And then this is like the very last step. And, you know, entrepreneurship is a game of leverage. And like this is a very high leverage thing you can do at the point where you truly understand it. And you can take the person out of the process and just automate everything. So Right. Now, you are also doing some other pretty cutting-edge sales techniques that you've developed and conceptualized, and you're now implementing some pretty advanced stuff, which I was very intrigued by. And you have amazing names for them. Uh, you mentioned, you just alluded a minute ago to the Dr. Dre project and the Mr. Miyagi project and some of those things, which is just amazing. Like you're, you, you guys internally must have an absolute blast at Pagely. I love that. But can you talk a little bit about what some of those projects actually are? Yeah, let's talk about that one. I mean, that's the most recent thing that I'm working on. So this is basically... Uh, I am able to operate in either a sales capacity or a marketing capacity. Right now, marketing is our biggest bottleneck. So I have hopped the departmental fence to go assist the marketing team in helping generate more leads. So that's kind of the, the backstory. What this is, is a two-part thing. So Dr. Dre is like what I would think of as the fuel source towards this effort. Uh, Mr. Miyagi is the engine. And the idea is that uh, we have a very high dollar premium you know, B2B SaaS product that we sell to companies like Disney. Can you say what SaaS stands for? Oh, yeah. So, uh, software as a service. 
So this is something where getting the right people like leads to us are extremely valuable if they're from the right companies. Because you're only, and just to be clear, you're only selling business to business. This is not a business to consumer company. So you, your clients are all businesses and they're major businesses. Correct. Disney, Warner Brothers, that caliber of enterprise. Fortune 500, exactly. Right. Yeah. So, so the leads, uh, it's not a, a high volume game. It's a really targeted, how do we get those you know, upper echelon leads? And so what this particular system uh, or tandem systems that I envisioned, so we get a fair amount of traffic and extracting more value out of that traffic was my goal. Not to go try to find new traffic sources, but how do we get more out of the people that are already visiting our site? So that's the goal. Uh, And the approach here was basically I am able through reverse IP lookup, which is a fancy name for doing some technical stuff to see based on your IP address to take a guess at what company you are. Uh, it doesn't work with VPNs and things where, you know, people are using a public internet access point or whatever, but it does work you know, since a lot of these people are companies that I'm able to do a reverse IP lookup, get what company they're coming from, uh, take a guess as to that. And then I can go to LinkedIn and all this is automated. So I get that, I get the company name, I go to LinkedIn, I pull the five people that are most high priority targets for us at that company. Um, so those would be people that have either the term marketing or IT in their title. Uh, So I pull those upper level management people and then I bring them into a system. We get a bunch of other demographic data about them and I load them into something called reply app, which is where we do our automated cold outreach. And yeah, so we basically do a cascading outreach. Uh, This is the Mr. Miyagi part, that former piece that I just described was Dr. Dre. Mr. Miyagi is the nurturing engine basically that goes through and cascades through each one of those stakeholders and says, you know, hey, we noticed that someone from your team was investigating Pagely. Just want to make sure you're getting all your answers. And we have like cadence to five different people in the organization, cascades through a series of emails. If it doesn't work on that first person, it falls back to the next target. I want to take just one minute out to let you know that in addition to hosting The Maverick Show, I am also the co-founder of Maverick Investor Group, a real estate brokerage that helps you buy turnkey rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets from anywhere. So these are single family homes sometimes two to four unit properties, and they're either brand new or fully renovated, and they already have tenants and local property management in place. So you get all the benefits of owning the deeded real estate, that physical house, the hard asset, without the headaches of being the landlord or the rehabber or needing to live near the property. So I want to offer you a free consultation if that sounds interesting to you. To learn more about it, you can just go to themaverickshow.com slash consult. And now, back to the episode. So just to sort of reiterate that and make sure that I'm understanding that properly, this is for a lead who comes, looks around on your website, but does not opt in and provide their company information and their contact information. They just maybe come check out the site. That's correct. And you're able to identify what IP address they're coming from, assuming they're you know checking it out from their office or whatever. Say, oh, they're from this major company. And then you're able to go on LinkedIn and pick out five people from that company that are relevant, right? That would be decision makers with respect to potentially buying a service like Pagely. Yep. 
And then you're able to outreach directly to them and, and send a personal email. Say, hey, you know, I, I think somebody from your company was checking out our website. Just wanted to make sure you got all your questions answered. So it's a personal email from you to them. And then if they don't respond, this is the part that I think is, is really remarkable. If that person doesn't respond, like if it's, you know, Adriana is the first person you send it to, let's say, and Adriana doesn't respond, you're able to then send it to the second person that you pulled from that company who would potentially be relevant. Let's say that person's name is Joe. And then your email says, hey, Joe, I just contacted Adriana about this thing. And, and so there's actually an interpersonal connection that you're making between people in the same company in this email follow-up. That's exactly right. Yeah. And th this thing is a week in service now. We just deployed it a week ago and we've already seen some pretty promising early results. And I think you nailed it. It's that interpersonal, when you see someone's name, you know the person, they're a coworker, and it's couched in, in a very helpful way. It says, hey, Joe, I had reached out to Adriana. Maybe she's on vacation, was wondering maybe if you're the more appropriate person for me to be talking to about this. That's it. It's that right. simple. And they know that it's, it's very different. They know it's not a spam email or some generic thing because you're referencing another person in their company and you've actually taken the time to go and look them up on LinkedIn. You actually have this information about them. It's a personal email and now you're referencing someone else in their company. So they're like, okay, this is at least not some generic spam email. That's right. That they're getting. And so they know that. And so the likelihood of their response is going to be significantly higher, I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah. And this is another example of that scaling personal attention. This is exactly what someone would be doing if we were to take like an intern and put them on this task. Only we've now automated it to a machine level. And if that second person doesn't respond, it then goes to the third person and you have a, a cascading situation where it says, then it says, I reached out to Adriana and Joe and neither of them responded. I thought you might be the right person. And it goes cascading through all five people like that, mentioning the names of their colleagues that you have tried to reach out to and all of this from pulling the information off of LinkedIn to sending the initial email to cascading down the list of the five people, if none of them respond, you've automated the entire process. So we've automated up to the point. So the part that we are Flintstoning right now, and it's decidedly this way, is the uh, choosing who to email and like prioritizing those outreach. We use a system that I think of like an exoskeleton that lets us do a lot of this without as much work. But that's what the function that Reply App performs. So yeah, just choosing those priorities is all manual right now, putting them into the cadence, but then all that outreach is automated. Well, super exciting and super innovative to see where you're going with all of this stuff. And what's also been super awesome to see is your ability to execute all this stuff and design it while traveling the world and being fully remote and being in a different country on a different continent than most of your coworkers, which <laughs> something, is awesome. Something I don't think I put in the, uh, I don't even think I've told you this, but like the largest sale that I, that I closed for the company was actually in a Moroccan bowling alley. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know if you know Rhonda, maybe you've met her, maybe you haven't, but she was uh, an awesome girl in our group. You got to meet her. But she was throwing this event. It was at a Moroccan bowling alley. And I, I can't name the client, unfortunately, but uh, it was the biggest deal in the company history. And it closed. I literally got the PO of a picture of me holding up the PO in front of the bowling pins and she's controlling the music and she throws on all I do is win. <laughs> so it was just one of the highlights, one of those moments. <laughs> That's amazing. I mean, this is the nomad life that you're able to do all this stuff and run all the things at this level, deal with Fortune 500 caliber clients, close those types of deals 
and be able to do it from a Moroccan bowling alley or the beach in Brazil or anywhere else, you know? I mean, and this, I think, is really significant. So, so let's talk a little bit about travel because I know that's, you know, the nomad lifestyle is something that's been really important to you and travel has been a really big part of your lifestyle. And maybe let's just start back way before remote year, way before your, your decision to become a full-time nomad. When you were first starting to travel outside the country, when you were studying abroad in college, can you tell us a little bit about what your initial experiences were internationally when you went outside the country by yourself? So that was a, a, quite a while ago. I'm going to date myself, but that was 95. And it was in college. And I went to Quito, Ecuador to live for six months. And uh, it was just one of those completely eye-opening experiences. It was my first time out of the country. I learned to paraglide that trip. I got certified as a paraglider. I climbed a 19,700-foot active volcano, the largest one in South America, Cotopaxi. Uh, swam with the seals in the Galapagos. And it was just like we lived in the rainforest for two weeks uh, with a shaman and, you know, got to just it was just a mind blowing experience uh, having never been outside the country prior to that. Um, so I think that really like primed me and got, you know, got this travel bug. And on that experience, when you were abroad, did you have highs and did you have lows? Did you have travel snafus and, and things? And, and how did you how did you cope with that? How did you deal with that? How did you process it all? I mean, maybe tell us, you know, what stories, if any, from that period in your life really stand out? What are like kind of your top memories from that, you know, that period abroad in Ecuador? And then, and then ultimately, what did you take from that? Sure. Okay. So literally the highest high would have been Cotopaxi at 19,700. We summited that. It was myself and this other guy, uh, Ecuadorian guy, Frank, that I met there. And that was a crazy experience. We slept, you know, we went to the refuge, which was at like 14,000 feet. And at midnight, we started walking up this enormous mountain. And I don't think I really like fully internalized how big of a mountain we were climbing. So this is the single largest active volcano in all of South America. Correct. Yeah. Cotopaxi. Yeah. So, so we leave at midnight and we summited somewhere around 7 a.m., like right as the sun's coming up and you're not supposed to be on top once the sun is up. So we really didn't have much time. We're like 15 minutes on the summit because there's dangers of avalanche. And you've got, you're like, literally we're hopping crevasses. I mean, it's legit dangerous stuff. And so we're roped in and we're on summit, you know, taking pictures. I've got some amazing photos from up there. And then we start our way down and about 30 minutes on the way down. You know, your legs are just jello at this point. Cause we've been hiking for seven hours in almost zero oxygen, you know? So hiking down the mountain, my crampons lock up. So crampons for the people listening is those little teeth that you put on your boots that allow you to grip the snow and the ice and whatnot. So uh, the, the teeth in my boots gripped each other and locked up and I went over the edge and I did what you're supposed to do. I threw my ice axe and start like sliding down this very steep grade thing. It was like a 70 degree. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Fortunately, the guy that I was with was a very experienced mountain climber. So Frank knew exactly what to do. He jumped over the other side through his ice axe. He was a little guy, right? I'm 6'7", like 210. He is a little Ecuadorian guy, but he was able to, like between us, between my ice axe and his ice axe, we were able to arrest my fall because I would have, we would not be having this interview right now. <laughs> wow. So wait, when you say over the edge, do you mean you were at the top of the volcano at the summit? We were about 90% up to the top at that point. We we're on our way back down. So we were about an hour back down. Wow. Yeah. And then, and then you put your ice axe 
I'm sliding down at this point, maybe, a, I don't even know what is that, like a 70% grade. I'm sliding down a very steep hill at this point. And I just jammed my ice axe. You, you know, it's roped around your hand. You throw it into the, the ground as hard as you can, and it just starts to slow you down. But between that, you know, I was roped into Frank. So he's over, he's basically diving over the other edge to counterbalance my descent. It was nuts. Wow. Yeah. And then when he threw his ice axe in and you had yours in, he was able to slow your fall to a stop. I slowed it. And then he, when it basically, when the rope caught, he was on the other side of it already. And so the two of us would just basically lay there, you know, draped over this mountain. And then, and then you both had to then climb back up. Correct. Your yeah. respective size, which yeah. you're able to do in a balancing act. Yeah. And both make it back up. Yes. That's amazing. It was bananas. I would, honestly, I would not climb another mountain like that again. I, I, I did it. I have no desire to do that you again. You got the picture to show for it. You got the story to tell. There wasn't even the Instagram Maverick at show. that point. Yeah, exactly. Like, it was pre-Instagram. <laughs> wow. That's amazing. And then as you were living in Ecuador, were there any other experiences that stand out, travel snafus, different things that you sort of came across at that, at that young age? Yeah, for sure. So I think the biggest snafu we had, there was a group of us. So this was an exchange program with 17 people. I think a group of like six of us did a side trip to Atacamas, which is on the beach. Manta and Atacamas are right there. So we went from Quito to Atacamas and we didn't know what we were getting into. Like we, this was just the ill-fated trip. We get in this bus, bus, you know, drives for a few hours, leaves in the morning. We get to a road that's been washed out. It's a literal mudslide. So you can't, like the entire road is just unpassable. Uh, So everyone gets out, they take all their stuff and we just trudge through the mud with all of our belongings to the other side of this thing, get picked up by a different bus you know, there was a dump truck involved at some point where we had to all pile into the back of a dump truck. Anyways, long story short, we didn't make it to the town in time. We thought we'd be there at a normal hour, but by the time all this is over and said and done, we get to the halfway point where a little town called Imbabura and we arrive and it's like 10 o'clock at night. And in a normal sized town, that would be a no problem. There'd be a hotel with a front desk and whatnot. But in this town, everyone was asleep. There was literally not, not a soul awake in this town. So six travelers, freezing cold. This is in the middle of winter. We're in this little town and we just, we were like, what do we do? Like, we're going to freeze. We can't sleep on the street. So we wander around and eventually we found an ATM booth. And so we literally, we spent that night, six of us huddled together, body heat in an ATM booth in Imbabura, made it to Atacamas the next day. There was more craziness to that trip, but yeah, that's probably the biggest travel snafu I've ever, ever been involved with. That's amazing. Now, are you today still in touch with any of those six people? I am. Yeah. Yeah. Kobe Johns is the firefighter. He's now captain in Fresno. Uh, He's probably the one that I see most. He's still, he's on Instagram now. That's amazing. And so then fast forward to your current choice to live a nomadic life style. And you had a job with Pagely and you had a really good career and you had all this stuff going on. What was it that made you decide to go and be a digital nomad and to go and travel the world in the way that you have over the last number of years? Yeah, uh, I think the desire has always been there. I got kind of sidetracked for a while and I, I have just a super rambling, weird career trajectory. I've worked as like a 3D animator. I have a real estate license. I was a uh, an EMT at one point. <laughs> I've been a computer programmer of eight years. So I've done a number of things. I wrote a post 10 years, exactly 10 years prior to remote year. And it was when I was working remotely in Cabo. 
And I just, I said, I'm going to do this. I'm going to travel the world and this is the new lifestyle and this can be done independently. Unfortunately, I went back to the US and ended up starting a company called Jumpbox that ran for 10 years. So it was like a 10 year kind of derailment of that effort. But then when Pagely came around, like that company, we ultimately wound down. And then Pagely came along, was with them for a year. And then it just, it was like all the stars came in alignment and facilitated it. And what was your, when you decided to go and remote year was your first, and that was the initial impetus, right? That got you from where you were based in the United States to saying, I'm going to actually go and travel the world and travel around and work remotely. And I'm going to do this at this point in your life when you were reactivating that nomadic spirit and that desire for travel, it was the remote year opportunity that was your first inclination that that ended up getting you actually out of the United States. And then you've obviously continued subsequently. Is that right? And how did that sort of, how did that sort of impact you? I mean, I want, I want you to explain what remote year is for people that have maybe never heard of it or they don't know about it. What is remote year and what was that experience like for you? What did that mean to you in your life at that point when you were able to, to do that trip? Yeah. So remote year, well, actually, let me back up just a previous step to that because it's an interesting story of how that came to pass. So I was actually working for Pagely, like I said, for a year, contemplating how do I take advantage of this fact that I'm totally remote. The entire company is distributed. It's an entirely virtual company. So I'm like, this is silly for me to be working out of my apartment when I could be anywhere. So I started looking into the possibility of doing a U.S. road trip. So reconnecting with a bunch of people I hadn't seen in a while, I started plotting this road trip. Uh, but the deeper I got into it, the more I realized that this is just not going to be feasible. Like to be as a solo driver and plotting the next thing and where I'm going to stay that night and then driving and then all that while trying to work for Pagely, it was just going to be completely infeasible to be productive throughout that. So I kind of gave up on that vision. Uh, but about that time, my buddy Chris who was a neighbor who actually lived a block away from me in Arizona, he came over to my house one night in Arcadia and he says, you know, I got accepted this thing. I would love to do it, but I don't know how you work remotely. You got a remote job. Can you just tell me how you do your job remotely? So he and I start talking, but he's describing remote year, what he got into. And I'm like, man, this is like what I need to do my, what I want to do with the U S road trip. Only it's international. It's going to all these amazing places. So like he's just describing it and I'm like, my jaw drops. And I'm like, dude, you definitely need to do this. First of all, I will help you work remotely. I'll that you can learn that. But yeah, absolutely. You're doing this and I'm going to do this with you. So yeah, like well, we ended up both traveling. We were in Darien and we did a year together. It was amazing. Um, but in terms of remote year, what that is. Uh, so it is basically a travel program that takes people with location independent work and they travel as a unit uh, for one year, basically 12 months, 12 cities. And it provides the infrastructure, the, the, you know, the flights, the accommodations, the workspace, activities, all the, all the stuff to facilitate that. Yeah, and I did remote year as well, which, as I said in the beginning, is how you and I eventually met through that alumni network. I was about probably three groups behind you. You started, I think, in, in May of 2016. That's right. And I started in September of 2016. So I was like a few behind you. And so you, you and I never met because our groups never crossed paths. But in the alumni network, then now there's just thousands you know, of people that have gone through remote year, have completed remote year. And it's just such an amazing network meeting people like you and like a number of our common friends that we have now. But it's like you know anywhere in the world that I now go. I was just in, for example, Nairobi, Kenya 
for a month earlier this year with a different program called Wanderish Life. And they did a month-long experience program there and brought a community together and provided us housing and workspace and everything else. So I was there with Wanderish Life. And I just threw out to the Remote Year channel. I was like, by any chance, is anybody going to be in Nairobi in September? And six people were like, yep, I'll be in Nairobi in September. I was like, you got to be kidding me. Now, I didn't know any of them because they were all from different Remote Year cohorts, right? They weren't from my group, but they were from different Remote Year cohorts. And they're in this alumni network. And so I met up with six Remote Year people that I never met, including one of them was Kenyan right? Who had done remote year. So he brought a whole Kenyan crew of people who of course were at least as interesting as remote year people. Like you would not believe one of the Kenyan guys that he brought that was his buddy. It was interesting because I was going from Nairobi and I was going to go to Kyoto directly from Nairobi. And I was going to spend five weeks in Kyoto. And this was my last week in Nairobi when I met up with them. So oh, yeah, what are you doing? And I said, um, so yeah, I'm going to go to Japan and I'm going to spend five weeks there in Kyoto. And his Kenyan friend, born and raised in Nairobi. He's like, oh, that's great. He's like, yeah, I just lived in Japan for seven years. I speak fluent Japanese and you know all this kind of stuff. This Kenyan guy sitting there having a drink with me in Nairobi. He speaks fluent Japanese. He just lived in Japan for seven years, right? I'm like, really? Like, that's insane. Like, can you make some recommendations or whatever? He's like, oh yeah, you gotta do this and this and this and all this stuff. And I mean, it, it's just like the networking of these types of, and this guy had never done remote year. The, the Kenyan guy that did remote year was his buddy which is how I met him, but like as fascinating as anybody I've ever met in these, you know, in these circles and stuff. And so it's just amazing how these networks work. Yeah. And that was something where going into remote year, I don't know, like I certainly didn't foresee that being a benefit of it. Like I had no idea that this whole citizen alumni thing would exist. It was really more about like, for me, solving the logistical issues, which was a different reason for you. I know it it was more for the community for you. It morphed into that. I think people come to it thinking, oh, yeah, I just need someone to solve those logistics. 100% of the time, though, you know, three months in, you realize it is all about the community. All about it. And I had been nomading around for a while before Remote Year. And for me, when I saw that, I was like, they're going to bring, you know, 40 plus people together that are going to be coming into this with the, you know, stated intention of leaving all of the people that they know and they're, you know, whatever behind and traveling the world with a bunch of strangers for a year. Anybody that's willing to do that is by definition an interesting person that I want to meet and I want to hear their story. Correct. Period. (laughs) Period. And they're making a commitment to being part of and developing and cultivating an intentional community with that travel group for the scope of the entire year, which means that the depth of those relationships of living with people for an entire year is just, I mean, incredible. Yeah, I, you've said it. I think it was the best year of my life. I think it was yeah, the same for, for me you. as well. I mean, it was just, it was just totally incredible. And we, you know, everybody that, you know, finished the program with our remote year group, we still have a chat, you know, a Facebook chat group where we're literally posting, I dare say every single day, like 15 months after it's, it's over. You know what I mean? I mean, that's for me is like as family for life. You know what I mean? Like anytime I'm ever near any city where those people are, Anytime people need anything, anytime, you know, everybody's doing their own thing and we're all supporting each other. And it's just, you know, it's like a family for life thing. It's just, uh, it's amazing. And like at this age too, it's really amazing to, to be able to have that and to experience that, you know, cause I talk to people, I'm like, you know, people that are, are, let's say, you know, they live in a city and I, I say to them, you know, think about your, you know, in your, in your, in your thirties or in your forties, whatever it is, you know, 
think about who your top, let's say, three best friends are in your city, right? And then if they don't work with you in your office, right? How often do you actually see those people in person, right? And maybe let's take your number one best friend out of it, but say best friend number two and three, how often do you actually see them? And most people are like, um, once every like three or four weeks. And it's like, oh, we should really get coffee. We should really go out to dinner. We should really catch up, you know? And you see them once a month or once every whatever. In remote year, you see these people every day. I mean, that's an amazing level of just connection and depth that you just don't have in regular life. And I think the other element that maybe isn't as obvious, but I think is, is absolutely every bit as important is that diversity. So you're talking diversity across age, uh, obviously gender, uh, sexual orientation, race, ethnicity, you name it. It's just like this amalgamation of the most unlikely crew of people to travel together that ends up just becoming so close. Yeah. And it's really, it's like, you know, you're going to meet some of the best friends that you've ever had and some people that you connect with on an insane level. But like, even the people that let's say are the furthest out from like the type of person, if you want to call it that, that you'd normally be friends with, or somebody that's like outside of your, what you know, has no perceived initial shared interest with you or whatever it is, they all do have in common the fact that they're passionate about world travel. They're willing to leave everything behind and travel the world with a bunch of strangers for a year and they're committed to building a community with you. You know what I mean? So like even, you know, whoever was like the farthest from me of who I would normally be, you know, whatever you want to call it, friends with or whatever, that person, even the farthest end out of that community, the fact that they were committed to me and they were committed to building a community, an intentional community with me, and they had my back for a year, every single human being in that group is family for life for me, period. Like end of story. You know, and like your year will just, I think, bear that out and reflect that in terms of how many different moments, like down times or whatever, that different people were there for you and like people you, you know, weren't even that close to, let's say, all of a sudden are like there for you in this crazy moment and you just connect with them and then the depth just goes. And then all of a sudden for the rest of the year, like you're like, wow, and you're viewing that person differently. You know what I mean? So it was just, it was amazing. Yeah. I mean, if it's any testimonial, we had our one year reunion after the, our group finished. So that was in June this year in Prague, which was the first city we went to on remote year. And we had finished with 50 and I think 36 of them came back to Prague. So if that's any testament, I mean, we had a a really strong group. That's amazing. So for you after that year, what would you say just reflecting back on your personal growth? What you know, in what ways do you view the world differently or what can you now, you know, not, you know, what do you now see differently or what are sort of your personal growth reflections on what, you know, pre-remote year and post-remote year, what that travel experience did for you? I mean, if I had to distill it to one adjective or one, I guess it's a noun, I don't know, but tolerance, like being able to recognize that every situation is not as bad as it seems. And like, you're going to just deal with so many inevitable little, you know, annoyances and things that don't work quite right. I think we get kind of spoiled in the US of, or we take for granted, at least for a lot of things that work extremely well, but that's all we've ever known. And therefore we don't have any perspective of anything other than that. And so, I mean, remote year to me was like this weightlifting exercise in virtues like tolerance and resilience and patience and, you know, just, I don't know, virtues like that, that, uh, I think, I think make, make us all better people having done it. Totally agree. And what about 
travel in particular? I mean, remote year included, but also your travel outside of remote year, your experiences living abroad in different places for extended periods of time outside remote year, everything all included together. Why do you travel? What does travel mean to you? What do you get out of travel itself? A number of things. So I think it provides this constant stimulation that keeps you just, I don't know, to me, it feels like this is living. Like this is how we're, we're meant to lead extraordinary lives. And somehow along the way, we get kind of lulled into a sedentary lifestyle where we're expected to go to a nine to five and expected to be in a cubicle. And like somehow people get the idea that that's normal. To me, this is how we're meant to live. Like, I think this is a weird thought, but like to me, we are hardwired as a species, we've, we've lived in tribes far longer than we haven't. And I think there's something that is unacknowledged with this whole travel program thing where remote year provided like the modern day tribe, you felt it, it's a squad, it's your people and you're moving as a unit from place to place. And like, I don't think we can underestimate the value of returning to this tribal existence. I think there's something incredibly powerful about that, that just like, at least in my situation, it awakened me, it revitalized me. I was in a kind of a social rut prior to going into remote year. And it just like shocked me back to life for lack of a better word. That's amazing. How do you see the future of remote work and how do you see the evolution of the digital nomad ecosystem? I mean, I just go back to like, you know, when I started traveling, I became a full-time digital nomad. I And what I mean by that is I got rid of my uh, home base, right? Got rid of my apartment entirely, had no home base and, you know, sold my car, sold my stuff, downsized my, my possessions. And I started traveling the world in 2013. At that time, remote year did not exist nor did any other work travel programs. I was thankful at that moment that Airbnb existed. I was like, Airbnb is amazing. You know what I mean? I was like, prior to Airbnb, I would have to either stay at a hotel or like rent a long-term apartment and then I have to find through a broker or whatever. Like Airbnb, I can just pick a city and stay for, you know, 37 nights if I want, exactly when I want to come and go. And I can take an Uber to the airport to my Airbnb and back. And it's crazy. I don't even have to speak the language. I can just order an Uber and it just takes me there. And then I stay in an apartment for how long I want. And isn't this insane? Because 10 years before 2013, none of that existed. There was no Uber. There was no Airbnb. Like you really would have had to you either rent a long-term apartment or you rent a hotel, right? And then, and so like, I was just so thankful in 2013 about all of this crazy stuff that was there. And now, literally five years later, the evolution of the digital nomad ecosystem and the ease with which people can travel the world and ingratiate themselves in amazing communities at pretty much all times is just unbelievable. So, I I mean, I, I put the question to you just in terms of like what you see as the future of work you know, both from a business perspective, corporate perspective, that kind of stuff in terms of remote work, but also in terms of the digital nomad ecosystem, the way that this is evolving and where it's going. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, I don't see work going backwards. I don't see us returning to a primarily office centric environment, at least for a while. Maybe there will be some weird backlash pendulum swing later, but I think we're still on the up and up in terms of more people doing, making this transition to this type of lifestyle. 
remote work in general, even if you don't go nomadic in the sense like you've been traveling for five years now, uh, not everyone has to go to, to you know, you, you wade into this at a pace which is comfortable to you. And uh, I think we'll see more of that. I think, you know, technologies like Slack and Zoom and these tools that we use now that really make it so there's no reason you need to be in an office. And there's actually a lot of advantages to not being in the same office as everyone. Personally, I can say that I felt the time zone offset was actually a, a super helpful thing in our case. It forced some issues, like it created a, it made it very obvious the hiring that needed to occur. It also gave me a lot more white space to be able to act strategically versus being very reactive and you know living out of my inbox. Um, so it had a lot of advantages, uh, you know, not to mention the the just the creative stimulation of being in all those places. But yeah, there's so many benefits to this, and it's it's becoming like the, what do you call it? The geo arbitrage or whatever that idea of like being in cheaper places, getting paid an American salary, your money goes further so you can stay there longer. Like there's just so many reasons why this makes sense now. And the barriers to doing it are, are basically falling away. So I don't see it. I only see it increasing in the, in the near term. I want to ask you about the Nomad Prep Academy that you created. Can you talk about, first of all, what inspired you to create that who it's for, what the purpose of it is, and then maybe describe a little bit about what it actually is for people that are interested. Sure. Yeah. So the Nomad Prep Academy is an online course. It's a two-week course that I created uh, that attempted to distill everything that I learned from my travels and make it so I can help more people make this transition, basically. Uh, I just see this as being so valuable uh, that I've devoted like all my spare time, really, between that and the podcast and Nomad Bloggers to making these properties that demystify this lifestyle change. It came about, I was working in Mexico City at the WeWork, and I was sharing, uh, basically sitting at a desk with a bunch of other remote year, what are called PAs, which are essentially their sales development representatives. And I overheard a bunch of phone conversations. I heard all the questions being asked. I heard the repetitive nature of everything. And I said, you know what? I can make something that will address all those questions and more and inspire people to want to do this. And so I put it into a format. I put a lot of time into making basically the tool, the onboarding tool that I wish I had in going into remote year. And so, yeah, it's, it's got gamification. It's got some inspiring, not just educational content, but inspiring content that keeps people motivated to do it. It uses all the automation that we talked about. So it just basically takes everything I know how to do. And I built the best thing that I could build to help people make this transition. So for people that are interested in exploring and learning about how they might be able to make that transition, right? As like your buddy who came to you with the remote your proposition and he said, oh man, I want to do this remote your thing. How do I do this? How do I create this? How do I transition into this? Or whatever it may be. For somebody that maybe is working at a regular job right now, or they're maybe trying to figure out how to get into this. Maybe they listen to the Maverick Show podcast and they hear the types of people that have come on and you know, they say, how do I get into the game? Or, you know, how does this stuff apply to me? Particularly the Nomad Prep Academy, does it talk about how to, you know, talk to your employer about working remotely? Does it talk about, does it, or, or how to build, you know, how to get into a, a, a remote income situation? Or is it more just the preparation for the lifestyle once you've achieved that? So it approaches it the way that I would approach a startup in terms of de-risking, taking the biggest pieces first. Um, so like day one is all about mindset and philosophy. And I go through this like visualization exercise where you got to embed that resolve of 
what, you know, what is that vision? What do you, why do you want to do this? Really get that firmly embedded because that's the thing that's going to carry you through the inevitable heartaches that are going to appear during the way. A hundred percent. So, but yeah, day two is exactly what you said. The employer, what are the biggest obstacles? It's the financial situation. You've got to have some funding source. And for most people, that's going to be a job or some form of passive income. So how do you get that in place? How do you have that conversation with your employer if you have a current job? And then the other thing that holds people back that I think is a big obstacle is just like, what's the lease situation? Or if I own a home, how do I resolve that? Um, so we tackle those the second day. And then from there, it's just literally de-risking pieces of it. So anybody that's in any situation, even if they have a, a, a W-2 income job or there are whatever else going on, you actually talk to them about how you can negotiate with your employer to do your job remotely or how you can do something that's included in the Nomad Prep Academy. Yep. That's amazing. I think that's really important. And people that, you know, listen to this podcast will know that, you know, it's not only entrepreneurs or business owners or, or you know, people that have passive income that I'm interviewing. I mean, people like you, for example, you actually have a full-time position at a company and you're a senior level director of the sales department of a major company that serves Fortune 500 clients. And yet you have been able to negotiate a remote work location and execute your deliverables and actually even execute them at a higher level while traveling the world and you know, living on the beach in Brazil or hanging out at bowling alleys in Morocco or whatever it is. And so even if people are at a very high senior executive level like you are, there are ways to negotiate with your employer to work remotely and even to show increased results while working from another continent. Yeah. Yeah. Anything is doable. I think it's all about risk mitigation. Take the perspective of your employer and think, what could I do? How could I frame this as an experiment that would make them feel comfortable? How do we wade into this scenario? You know, what's the the minimum viable product that I could produce, you know, working remotely one day a week to start and produce a result and get gain their trust. And now, okay, I want to go remote, you know, a couple of times a month, whatever, earn your right to do this. And then at that point, you know, you're building that trust I agree 100% with that. And it's interesting because a lot of, I believe that people and a lot of people that I have conversations with, right? If they're not into this lifestyle, a lot of people will try to come with objections first. Oh, I couldn't do that because, and then list of reasons why they couldn't do it. But in reality, as you and I know from being in these nomad circles, the people that we hang out with, either the people, I mean, we're here in Brazil with literally, there's probably 40 you know, digital nomads from all over the world that are actually here with us now that we're hanging out with and having barbecues with and going to these clubs with and drinking caperages with. And these people are from all over the world. And these people are a combination of some of them are entrepreneur business owners. Some of them are investors living off passive income. Some of them are freelancers. And some of them are full-time salaried employees. So whatever situation you're in, there is a path and there are people that have done it from your situation. And so if you want to do it, there is a way. And I think that's awesome that your Nomad Prep Academy addresses that and addresses different situations and helps people to understand how to negotiate that and how to begin talking about that process. Yeah, there's. I wish I could remember the quote and I won't, but there's something about St. Antoine Exbury or whatever. He's saying like, if you're trying to build a ship, you're not going to go out and try to teach people the process of shipbuilding. 
if you want to do anything, the single most valuable thing you can do is teach them to long for being on the sea, right? Like embed that resolve. And so I think that's like, get that clear in your head, first of all, and in your heart. And once you have that, kind of the other pieces will find a way to fall in place. I agree with that entirely. If your drive is strong enough, you will figure out a way. And because you're going to change your excuses. See, here's the thing. I think that people will either make excuses, which are self-justifications for maintaining their current position, right? Which is the definition of an excuse in my opinion, right? And, and basically you're trying to self-rationalize why you are in your current position and why you can't do what those guys on the podcast I heard about are doing, right? Or you're going to say, this is the same thing that's on person A's excuse list. On person B is going to say, this is my obstacle that I have in front of me. I identify it as an obstacle, i.e. my employer will not currently let me work remotely, (laughs) right? And then they're going to say, how can I potentially begin overcoming that obstacle? Yeah. And those are the two, those are two totally different frameworks. Yeah. Just by framing it in that way, what might I be able to do that could change this equation? Frame it that way. And that is a fundamentally different approach to saying, these are the reasons why I can't do it. Exactly. Exactly. And so if you are in that mindset and and that is what you want to do, you want to achieve that, you want to have that lifestyle, you want to do that, there is a path from every single position. It doesn't matter if you're a salaried employee or a freelancer or an entrepreneur or anything else. There are people in every single category that are literally here with us right now in Brazil that have done that. So there is a path. But then beyond that, assuming somebody has actually established a location-independent income stream, right? There's a big difference between being location-independent and being a digital nomad, right? I've been location-independent for 11 years. I just chose to spend my first six years of location-independence in Los Angeles, California, because I love LA. I had no business purpose there. I had no geographical restriction confining me there. I just loved LA. And then five and a half years ago, I decided to start traveling the world and becoming a digital nomad, becoming an itinerant world traveler. And those are two different life choices. So there's a difference between location independence and and digital nomadism. So for people that have established that location independence income stream, meaning like they can quote unquote work from home, but they can also work from Brazil or Thailand, right? If you can work from home. So for people then that say, okay, I got my income straight. The Nomad Prep Academy is then also going to be able to tell them how to prepare to travel the world. Is that right? Yeah. So it is applicable to anyone who wants to do this, regardless of how they want to do it. If they want to do it with a travel program or go via solo travel like you did, it's making the assumption that if it's your first time, you're likely like the way to easily wade into this, like pretty confidently is through a travel program. So it makes that assumption that you're, you're going to go with one of those, but it's agnostic. Uh, Actually on day one, we help you choose whatever travel program is the most beneficial given your circumstances. Awesome, man. And then tell us a little bit about the Nomad podcast. I think, you know, we both enjoy interviewing nomads because they're amazing, inherently interesting people. And so I would do it. It's the thing I would do every day if, money were no object, I would just be doing nomad podcasts, interviewing people right and left. Yeah. And you're getting very high caliber guests. I mean, you're getting founders of a lot of the top nomad, you know, work travel programs and, you know, full-time digital nomads that are doing really interesting stuff and have been for many years. I mean, you're getting really premium quality guests. And I think 
that you're asking and you're talking about very cutting edge travel issues. I, of course, subscribe to the Nomad podcast. I think I've listened to every episode so far. But, you know, it's, it's really high level conversation with people that are, you know, if you want to call them influencers or if you want to call them, you know, whatever you want to describe them as, they are people that are certainly on the forefront of developing business solutions, lifestyle solutions, you know, and really forward thinking people that are deeply engaged in this lifestyle and thinking about developing solutions for other people to engage in this lifestyle and really building a movement of sorts, you might say. Yeah. I I break it down into three categories. I wanted to interview nomads. So full-time nomads like yourself, founders, product founders, program founders, and then uh, domain experts. And the domains that I, I focus on are things that I really think can help nomads. So things like, you know, the last guy I think I had was a, a business coach that helps you figure out that you know, what could I build in terms of a passive recurring sustaining income? Uh, but like sleep experts, self-defense experts, nutritionists, all the things that I think can teach us, you know, all the people, the experts that can teach us things that are very useful to nomads on the road. Yeah, that's awesome. So we're going to link up to all of this stuff. Everything we've talked about, we're going to link in the show notes. Just go to themaverickshow.com and go to the show notes for this episode. We're going to have the link to the Nomad Podcast, the Nomad Prep Academy. If you're interested in that, we're going to link to all the Pagely stuff that we talked about so you can actually see the sales systems that Sean has developed and actually go through the Choose Your Own Adventure video and just see what they're doing and see what elements of that might be applicable to you and to your business. So all that stuff is going to be in the show notes. Sean, so at this point, are you ready for some lightning round questions? Man, I am so ready, but only if I can do the sound effect for it. Hit it, man. (laughs) The lightning round. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, now see if that sounds like the actual lightning round effect, which we're going to drop in right here. The lightning round. What is one book that you would recommend that has really influenced you over the years? I mean, so business book, I think it's got to be Steve Blank, Four Steps to the Epiphany. Uh, Horribly written book, by the way. It uh, It was basically like a summary of a bunch of lectures he had given. And it's just strewn with typos, but incredibly powerful insights and ideas. So that would be the biggest business book. I would say uh, Ayn Rand, maybe, you know, Atlas Shrugged is up there. It's just a really powerful book. Alchemist was another favorite. So, What would be one either blog that you read, podcast that you listen to, YouTube show that you watch, some type of content medium that you consume that you would highly recommend to other people? So I read uh, Hacker News daily. Uh, Contrary to what it sounds like, it's not all like geek hacker stuff, but it's just a, a super interesting... It's Paul Graham, the founder of the Y Combinator Incubator. He built uh, essentially a news aggregator, like a Reddit site, but it, it tends to focus on kind of the the programmer types, but it's super interesting just like it, it's not the boring news or like the depressing news. It's all like kind of the positive advancement, cool stuff going on. Cool. What is one app or productivity tool or gadget that you're currently using that you'd recommend? I got to say the, the TRX stuff has been really useful. Like, so I use that TRX suspension trainer. It's what I do in place of going to a gym in every city that I'm in. Uh, I just use that and it's, it's phenomenal. Can you explain how it works? Yeah. So actually, 
I had met the founder of it, Randy Hetrick, was a, a Navy SEAL who created this device. They trained, and I, I believe the backstory is they were this this elite unit of Navy SEALs that had to live in shipping containers, like in China, and they had to be ready on a moment's notice to go and deal with like a hijacked boat scenario. And so, but they were literally living in shipping containers, so very confined spaces. This was what he created to be able to stay in shape in that scenario. And that's an extreme use of it, but like for a nomad, it just it folds down to this, you know, something the size of, you know, maybe a softball, but you can string it up on a door frame, on a tree, whatever, and it provides a full body workout. Back, biceps, chest, tries, shoulders, abs, legs. That's awesome, man. I love that. I love the minimalist stuff as well. So, okay, let me ask you this. What are your top three travel destinations that you've ever been that you would most recommend other people visit or you'd most like to go back to? Galapagos was up there. I mean, it's just incredible. You've been, it's a good one. Galapagos, I would say Machu Picchu had to be my, probably my top thing that we did on remote year. It's mind blowing to me. Like it blows my mind that more people aren't blown away by it. You know, that how is everyone not just going like, holy crap, we got to go visit this because how is this even here? So just surreal place. Uh, and it lived up to its expectation. I was very excited to go there. And then in person, it's just as amazing. So definitely do that. Third one, man, that I would return to. Or that you'd most recommend that other people do. I mean, even if it was a once in a lifetime bucket list thing, you know, like what do you, what, what sticks in your mind as a really influential or inspiring or amazing place that you've been? You know, we did a a side trip when we were in Valencia, uh, three of us went to Ireland and we drove across country and we, we, there was just this really like powerful moment where we got to the Cliffs of Moher and, you know, it's all mixed in with nomading. Like I then realized I had to do a call. So I raced back and closed the sail and the hailstorm and a laptop tethered in the vehicle. And it was just like all this crazy, but like standing there on the, you know, the Cliffs of Moher, just pre hailstorm, it was a really magical moment. That's awesome. And you and I, of course, are both uh, Irish-Americans, and I've spent a good bit of time, as you know, in Ireland as well. I went to Trinity College in Dublin for a year and uh, have been back to Ireland a number of times. So definitely a very, very special and magical place on many levels uh, for people that haven't been to Ireland, for sure. Okay, so what are your top three bucket list destinations that you've never been that are the highest on your list right now that you would love to see? Yeah. So I've never been to Asia, actually. Of all the places I've been, I've never been to that part of the world. So I really want to make it over there sometime in the next year. I'd like to go around Southeast Asia and you know, while I'm there, then do Australia and New Zealand. Um, so that's got to be number one. Uh, I've never been to Iceland. That's high up on the list. Uh, my buddy, Chris, who I traveled with, recently did a trip there and he's a just a brilliant photographer, videographer. And so seeing his photos, I feel like that's got to be on the list. And then a third destination... Man, can I go back to one of the places I've been to? Like we did, and it's, it's even in the U.S., so it's not even that exotic, but the Grand Canyon. We did a backpacking trip to the bottom of the Grand Canyon, and that was just just so epic. So that probably yeah. is my third to go back there. Yeah, a Grand Canyon is, is freaking insane. I mean, it's just totally nuts. I agree. Like I went there for the first time, I don't know, five years ago. It's the only time I've ever been there, and it was just like, what is this place? It's a lot of amazing places. You know, as we travel the world, it's interesting because sometimes we put so much emphasis on the international travel, but then all of a sudden, like, there's so many insanely epic places in the United States also. They're yeah. like, you know, are just like totally nuts. So that's a good, that's a good reminder and a good thing. 
Yeah, and cr- scratching off a bucket list item doesn't preclude it from being a future bucket list item again. I feel like it was that epic where I would absolutely go back to the to the Grand Canyon. Or Game. doing something different there, doing it in a different way, right? Like I didn't go all the way down to the bottom or do the rafting trip through the river. Or do, you know, like I went and did certain things there, but like you could go back and do other things there, which is how I feel like I leave a lot of cities. You know, like I'll go and stay, even if I stay in a city for four or five weeks, a lot of times I don't, I, sometimes I tell myself, in, I don't know if it's intentionally or like if I just kind of got too busy or lazy to kind of do everything, but I kind of like leave cities with like major things that I actually didn't do in that city. And that inspires me to like go back. I was like, oh yeah, I still got to go and do that. And so I want to return and have a new experience doing something else in that city. You know, I have a feeling this won't be the last time either one of us comes back to Brazil. This goodness is just me. amazing. Goodness gracious. Yeah, I, it's it's magical every time I come and I have the 10 year visa. So I'm allowed to come for 180 days a year for, I think, seven more years. So I'm sure we'll both be back. Awesome. So, Sean, tell people how they can get in touch with you, how they can follow you on social media. We are going to put in the show notes at themaverickshow.com all of the links to everything that we've mentioned here, all including all of your recommendations from the lightning round and all of your Nomad Academy and everything else. But if people want to connect with you, follow you on social media, how do they find you? Yeah, so I'm scrolling on dubs on most social media, which you'll appreciate. I know with the hip-hop background, but uh, scrolling, no G, scrolling on dubs. And I'm just not even going to attempt to explain that handle. That's just an amazing handle. One of our visual friends, she was like, she was like, what's Sean's Instagram handle? I was like, at scrolling on doves. She's like, no, it's not. I was like, oh, but it is. (laughs) (laughs) Which actually, wait a minute. That reminds me. I have to do, I have to do one more lightning round question with you that I forgot. Oh There are a select group of people that I interview that I have one very special question for which is to name your top five hip-hop artists of all time. And you are somebody that has a very diverse music background, appreciation for a lot of diverse types of music, but one of them is hip-hop. Yeah. And so I want to ask you, as the final sort of question here at Scrolling on Dubs, to, to name... Your top, if we were going to go out, but with you naming your top hip hop, uh, top five hip hop artists of all time. All right. So I would put Eminem up at the top. Uh, Dr. Dre, obviously up at the top. Ludacris, big fan. Probably Ice Cube. And then I don't even know if this qualifies, but Beastie Boys, like old school Beastie Boys. They definitely I think. qualify, man. They definitely qualify. Yeah. And that's actually a really diverse group of five because you've got East Coast, you've got West Coast, and you've got the South, man. So you're yeah. you're spread all over. You're yeah. diversified. I love it, brother. Those are great choices. Sean Tierney at Scrolling on Doves on Instagram. We're going to put all his stuff in the show notes. Be sure to check that out. Thank you so much for being here, brother. This is a really special interview. It's been awesome, man. Safe travels. All right. Good night, everybody. Be sure to visit the show notes page at themaverickshow.com for direct links to all the books, people, and resources mentioned in this episode. You'll find all that and much more at themaverickshow.com. Would you like to get Maverick Investor Group's white paper on real estate investing for digital nomads? How to buy U.S. rental properties from anywhere in the world and finance an epic international lifestyle? Just go to themaverickshow.com slash nomad. The report is totally free and available for you now at themaverickshow.com forward slash nomad. 
Do you want to learn how to travel the world for a year plus with carry-on luggage only and look good while you're doing it? Go to themaverickshow.com slash packing to see a free recorded webinar and learn exactly how Matt does it. He shows you the luggage he uses, the specific items he packs, and the travel brands he likes most. Even if you're just looking to go on shorter trips, but pack more efficiently and eliminate your checked luggage, you won't want to miss this. You can watch the free recorded webinar at themaverickshow.com forward slash packing.